Hi, I'm Keith DeGreen. You know, recently I had a great discussion with my longtime friend, Congressman David Schweikert, about America's health care crisis and the national debt. Now, David is a genuine expert on this subject. Now, DeGreen.com is pleased to present that discussion as a two-part podcast. In the first segment of our discussion on our public site, Congressman Schweikert outlines the challenges we face and they are considerable. For example, the Medicare fund is projected to run out of money in 2026. The Social Security Trust Fund is projected to be empty in 2033. And projections are that Medicaid will be broke somewhere between 2026 and 2030. But there are solutions to the problem. And in the second part of our discussion on our premium site, David outlines the several things that he says, and I quote, we must do all at once if we have the courage to save the system in a country where 5% of the population consumes 50% of government health care costs, in a country where 40% of our population is now obese, in a country where each taxpayer's share of the national debt is now about $250,000. And as America continues to age, the challenge and the solutions are of utmost importance to us all. So please join Congressman Schweikert and me as we explore this vitally important topic. Welcome to this edition of As I See It. I am your host, Keith DeGreen, and today we have this very special edition because I am joined by a dear and close and old friend of mine, uh, Congressman David Schweikert. Let me, before David and I get going, because we get each other going, and this can go on for a long time, into some cool stuff, and really interesting stuff, because uh, David is a very respected guy. He's a big brain, as you will see, um, and um, he's always got very interesting things to say. Sometimes he even smiles. David Schweikert is serving in his fifth term in the United States Congress for what is now Arizona's first congressional district. His public service goes way back. He served two terms in the Arizona State House of Representatives from 91 to 94. He chaired the State Board of Equalization from 1995 to 2004. This is in Arizona. And he was elected Maricopa County Treasurer from 2004 to 2007. If that doesn't sound like a big deal, let me point out, Maricopa County encompasses the Phoenix metropolitan area with a population now of 4.4 million people. And way back in 1988, David worked for the campaign of Arizona's Republican candidate for U.S. Senate. That would be me who managed to parlay his youth and inexperience into a defeat. Now, today, David holds a seat on the powerful Ways and Means Committee, and he serves as the ranking member of the Ways and Means Subcommittee on Social Security. I'm not sure that that's um, a, a vote of confidence in you or oh. a statement by you. It's, got, it's gotten even worse. I'm now the chair of oversight in Ways and Means. Oh, oh, really? Yeah, oh, so it, it got oh. even more interesting. Oh, wonderful. Now, look, prior to his service on the Ways and Means Committee, David served on the House Committee on Financial something, Financial Services, right? Um, as a strong advocate for efficiencies in the 21st century economy, David collaborates with entrepreneurs and innovators in Arizona and around the world on ways to increase trade and drive economic growth. Uh, look, you're going to find that David's kind of a geek and a good geek. Uh, he really knows his stuff. Uh, he revealed uh, to a group of friends recently that he, he thought he was going to become a quant. 
uh, an analytic analytics guy, uh, and that's kind of where his head is at. And as you will see, he's got a lot to share. He's the co-chair of the Blockchain Caucus. He's championed technological innovations as the solution to the problems uh, of overburdensome government regulations. He is married to the wonderful Joyce Schweikert, and they have two equally wonderful young children. David, how the heck are you? I'm very well, very well. And Good. I, I got to find a way to make that um, introduction shorter because it makes me feel really I, I, old. You, you wrote it. I pulled it off of your right, yeah. website. It, it needs an so. update. And I also <laughs> um, chair the House side of the Joint Economic Committee. So one of the oh, great joys oh. there is I have functionally five PhD economists that work for me. And that's actually one of the greatest joys I've ever had in my life. Is that right? You know, yeah. you know the old joke, if you place all the world's economists end to end, they would still not reach a conclusion. It, but, it, uh, it is, but it's interesting because we've been trying to shape this team to think a little bit differently, saying we see the demographic and this stunning curve on our spending exploding. How do you build a handful of economists not to tell us what we already know, but to say, yeah. here's where you could disrupt what is, um, I mean, the wheels are starting to come off and almost no one, other than, you know, some editorials in the Wall Street Journal and the Economist magazine seem to be blowing the horn on how bad the numbers are and how fast they're moving to that bad. Well, you know, you uh, look, there are a few people in Washington that have a, a better handle on the debt situation and the headwinds that um, we are going to encounter. Do you want to walk us through that trajectory? Yeah. And it's going to take a little I don't bit. Because I don't think most people are aware. Well, and, and Keith, you and I have had, uh, we need to disclose to everyone, if we seem to have a high level of familiarity, Keith's been one of my favorite people for many, many years. And we go, th we do this to each other. Um, it's more than just the debt. It's, it's the demographics. We're getting old very fast. It's our fertility rate. United States um, fertility rate has collapsed over, actually it's been collapsing for almost three decades, but it took a sharp punctuation during COVID. Now we're down to 1.67. You need 2.1 replacement rates. The math yeah. basically means in 18 years, the United States will have more deaths. Well, you know, I was dead wrong on that. I, I predicted that after COVID, uh, we would have a population explosion because everyone was stuck at home. There were a number of economists who thought that. Um, yeah. Uh, to the credit of our team, um, we didn't see any indications of that. Um, hmm. So in 18 years, the United States will have more deaths and births. Half the states already have more deaths and births today. So where I'm going with this is it's not only the fact that our finance costs, our healthcare costs are exploding, and that's functionally 100% of the next 30 years of borrowing. Um, the trust funds will be out of money in this 10-year window. So the transportation trust fund, the Medicare trust fund, and the big one, the Social Security trust fund, will be empty. And because of those headwinds, we're now seeing some data saying productivity um, is flatlined. And with that flat line of productivity, we're now projecting um, GDP growth to have a long run near 1.7, 1.8. Really? And that's yeah, David, a real, don't, real don't, problem. Don't you think that decline in productivity a little bit was uh, due to paying people to stay home and not work? Um, and won't that, won't it, that it, kind of work its way out? No, 
um, because it, it, we saw the the pop in the loss of productivity when you paid people, when you functionally sequestered people to stay at home. Right. But now what happens when those incentives are being pulled away and we're still missing three and a half million prime age males yeah. out of the labor force? And when we get into sort of the solutions, but one of the punchlines I'm going to give you as we walk through this, we've been trying to calculate, okay, where did these young males go? And instantly we always say things like drugs. And drugs are an incredible problem. But above that, obesity. One of the things we're not allowed to talk about, but we're going to. Um, obesity exploded, if, if God forbid I mix my metaphors, um, during the time of COVID. So today um, you have a society where, you know, we're heading towards 40% of the population is technically obese. Um, and it turns out it is now one of the primary drivers of debt because it's relationship to diabetes. Remember, diabetes is 33% of all healthcare spending. Yeah. So where I'm going to back up is um, some of the numbers really just take your breath away if you're someone who's willing to bathe in them and understand them. So we had our debt ceiling deal. We basically pulled the future debt to GDP. And understand, when we're starting to deal with numbers of this size, it's not great to say, it's a trillion dollars. It's much more elegant to say it's this percentage of the economy. So we should actually first sort of, instead of talking about the dollars, talk about the percentages of debt to GDP. What happens if you and I live in a society, a country, where our growth rate is 1.7, 1.8? That's the growth above inflation. Right. But our borrowing now is projected to be 7.5% of that economy. That difference is debt. It's borrowing. And we are heading towards a model that starts to say in just nine years, 10 years, there's going to be so much federal borrowing, you're going to start to see a crowding out effect. And with that consumption, even if the Federal Reserve is able to break the labor markets and some other things to start to pull inflation down, will the ravenish need to refinance and issue new U.S. sovereign debt mean that U.S. debt stays double what it was pre-pandemic? And if it does, the interest carry starts to also become devastating. So here, here's the baseline numbers, and here's what part of the punchline of this discussion. Can I, before you go too far, can I, I'm going to double back on something mm -hmm. that you said, or I don't want to. Um, no, no, don't do this, because I can get into a ramble on this. Uh, let me double back to something that you said uh, a moment ago, a few moments ago. That is the, um, where, where have all the young men gone? Uh, as the song says, they're not working right now. A uh, great book that you may be familiar with, The Myth of Income Inequality by Phil Graham, mm -hmm. Robert Eklund, and one other fellow. Um, they uh, detail very authoritatively the, the fact that the government is using all the wrong data points to determine um, who needs uh, supplemental assistance of any type from the government. And uh, it is appalling to report based on that very authoritative book that uh, households in the bottom, so-called bottom quintile of income, after transfer payments, welfare payments, of what we would call welfare, um, and after the next strata pays taxes on what they actually earn, uh, 
that the bottom 20% have about 3,000 households have about $3,000 a month, uh, $3,000 a year more to spend than the next quintile, the, the second lowest 20, the working poor. It's, and that's just appalling. It's it, just and appalling having worked with um, one of the economists who is part of that publication, that book, um, yeah. there's always been this weird number out there. If we take our lowest two quintiles, and we'll just do this quickly. Yeah. Um, they're poor. You know, let's be honest. That this is yeah, poor. They're struggling. But they're purchasing. So their their consumption is double what we model their income as. So so you have a little bit of a happen? problem yeah. there. Yeah. Of saying, okay, so here's their income, but we know their consumption is double that. Yeah. And it's always been a very strange um and and that's not new. We've been seeing that data point for about three plus decades. Hmm. So okay. on the big picture, um, a couple weeks ago, Bloomberg Intelligence, their two lead economists, put out a paper and said, okay, wonderful. You just did this debt ceiling agreement. It looks like you will pull down debt to GDP at the 10-year window from 119% of the economy being equal to the U.S. debt down to around 113 Okay, that's that. Those are when consider in ten years we're supposed to have a thirty-nine trillion dollar economy. That those numbers are real; they're huge. But then they came back and said, "But you got to understand, they model a higher interest rate on U.S. debt for those ten years. They they model a dramatically higher healthcare expenditure, particularly for Medicare. They also model a slowdown in GDP growth, because here's one of the great ironies." Just the baseline, not not outside the caps and some of the other rules that were part of that debt ceiling agreement. You functionally have 11% of the spending we were allowed to negotiate on. Remember, you can't yeah. negotiate on defense and 70, think of three quarters of spending is on autopilot. That's Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, veterans benefits, things like that. So out of that 11%, that's about $700 billion. We're going to just remove $100 billion of it. So now it's $600 billion spending. That $100 billion of reduction equals, in their model, reducing GDP growth by a full half a percent. And here's one of the great ironies of those of us who are desperately trying to bend the debt curve is we're having to also model the fact is when you take away that government spending, for at least a while, there's an inflection where you actually also slow down the economy because that spending today, borrowing today, and letting our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids pay it back in the future. So you start to see the fear that within the decade, do you start to get into, and, and it, there's not a crash. It's it's you inflate the currency is the way you deal with things like this, which wipes out people's value in their savings. Uh, infl inflation is is the debtor's friend. So inflation is the debtor's so friend. So in that right. Bloomberg Intelligence paper, our model um, two weeks ago after the debt ceiling was, hey, we're going to be at 113 percent of debt to GDP. The nation's highest was during World War Two is was about 118, and Bloomberg came back and said, with all these headwinds. Their model has us at 130% of debt to GDP. If that's true, 
That means in 10 years, just the interest will approach $2 trillion a year. That's more than we spend on all defense and all discretionary spending today. What are the, what's the impact of all this in the real world? If, you, if you're an investor or if you're trying to save money or if you own a business? Um, if you own a business, there's going to be intense pressure to start to dramatically raise taxes. And, and we're already seeing it today. Um, and it, whether it be for those of us as Republicans saying we need to freeze spending, and yet you have lines of people at your door demanding more spending, whether it be the folks demanding more defense spending or other types of projects. And if we're going to hold the budget caps, you need offsets. I'm going to cut somewhere over here or there's going to be new taxes over there. The left still has, you know, this fantasy of modern monetary policy, which um, the MMT um, fantasy you would have thought would have been washed out of their brains when they saw inflation for the last couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And they still, but for many of them, it's still a religion because they've given so many speeches of if we just tax rich people more and spending doesn't actually cause inflation, except when it does. Um, the, these numbers are brutal. Even Moody's Analytics had a much more optimistic um, number, but they had us at 221% of debt to GDP. And remember, this is in the nine-year budget window. And all that growth in spending, which we're talking trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions. You're talking a government yes. that if you, you take the Bloomberg number, we go from functionally 25, 26 trillion of publicly borrowed money. When you hear someone say, well, we're at 32 trillion, that delta from that 26 to that 32, that's when we're borrowing from trust funds and other types of things. And my Fear is there's this fantasy still out there, and it's many of us in the political class who haven't told the truth. If they're on the left, if we just tax rich people more, over $400,000. Keith, a, a trivia question. For the entire yeah. United States, folks that make over four hundred, what percentage of the population are they? Over 400000 a year? Yep. Uh, it's it, it's 1% and 2%. Two, I'm impressed. 2%. You're my very you. first person ever to get that right. Thank you. Yes. Well, so, you're welcome. So it's 2% of you the population. You should consult with me more often, David, but that's a, that's a sidebar <laughs> issue. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but the yeah. reality, we can take every dime they have, and, and it, I, I can finance oh, it my spending it, for several months, and then it's all gone. Uh, well, they, the, uh, here's another one. If you take all, I think we have 4,000 billionaires now. If you take all of their income for a year, it would run the government for something like two hours. It, it's... <laughs> yeah, but it, it, there's some distortions that, you know, when we talk about income and wealth and those things. Yeah. And, oh, and yeah, that's actually yeah, why yeah. there's going to be fascinating to see what the Supreme well, Court. Well, look, you, people, you know, the, the um, uh, what Elizabeth Wardens of the world are going to be emboldened due to inflation because everyone's paper wealth increases so, because their assets inflate, even though they don't buy as much. You So you beat me to, to the inflation. punchline. Um, once oh, again, I'm sorry. Keith, and that is, you sort of ask, what happens to investors, individuals, and those businesses? Yeah. If this insatiable appetite for spending on the left, how are you going to get enough cash? 
um, you can't get it from an income tax system. So the proposals we keep hearing from the left back in Washington are things like taxing unearned income, which I'm someone who believes that's unconstitutional. And it does look like the Supreme Court will know shortly if they're going to take a case of whether you're able to tax unearned income or not. Yeah, that's the couple out of, is a couple exactly. out of, um, of yeah, the one State, couple. And, and they've been working it for years, this this one oh. couple, and good for them. Yeah. But why that's important is um, if under the 16th Amendment, as it's designed, where it's a tax on income, not functionally on wealth and, and the, your unearned, unearned incomes, right. much of the Democrats claim that, well, they have a way to finance you know, Medicare for all and all this largesse by just stripping people of their wealth by taxing it. Right. If the Supreme Court goes that direction, you're going to suddenly see a pivot of a demand for a national value added tax, um, things of that nature. On top yeah, in other of words, excuse me, if the if the Supreme Court sustains your position and mine, yes. that taxing um, un, uh, uh, unearned income or unrealized gains um, is not constitutional, then you're saying you're going to see a pivot to the value added tax? Because at some point, the, you know, my brothers and sisters on the Democrat side, at least they try to say, well, here's how we would do it. Right. Now, the funny thing, I believe if we put up a vote tomorrow saying, okay, go tax this much income out of people's retirement accounts or their business wealth or these things, they, I don't know if they'd actually vote for it but they sure use it as an excuse of why they're allowed to keep spending. Um, this is tough stuff. Yeah. There's today our model is and, we and, borrow. And, and David, the irony of course on the left is that a value added tax is highly regressive. Oh yes. Highly regressive. Meaning that, you know, if you're, if you have to spend everything that you make and you don't have the luxury of saving or investment, then a larger percentage of your income is being spent on stuff to which a value-added tax would apply because it's nothing more essentially than a sales tax. So I'm making a circle in the conversation. So okay. the my friends on the left say, think they can find a path to tax. Um, none of that math works. For us on the right, we've also been duplicitous. We will say things like it's waste and fraud, it's foreign aid, because it's really uncomfortable getting in front of our audiences and saying it's demographics. We got old. It's interest on the debt, but it's mostly healthcare costs. And if in nine years we choose to backfill the emptying of the Social Security Trust Fund, because we had this huge moral dilemma coming, and I'm enraged on this one. This is one I'm incredibly angry about. In nine years, the Social Security Trust Fund is empty, meaning every Social Security recipient functionally will take a 25% cut. Everybody who's paid in all this money over the years, remember folks, Social Security is an earned benefit. Earned benefit. Like, Medi like Medicare is an earned benefit. You pay into, Medicare is just another form of insurance. Uh, Social Security disability, just another form of insurance. We all pay into it throughout our whole working lives. And you're reporting, David, that within 10 years? Nine, it's nine years now. Now, you know, I, as you know, I made my living as an investment advisor for decades. And if as a fiduciary, I raided someone else's trust account, well, I would go to jail. 
but but here's here's the punchline there that's a, a we we sometimes don't tell the truth about because it's it angers people for well and it's first if that 25% cut comes, we will double senior poverty in America. That's absolutely therefore, immoral. And therefore, you know, it's going to be a more than 25% hit on the upper strata of Social Security recipients, perhaps the implementation of means testing and so on, so that people who did what they were supposed to do and accumulated private savings and private wealth, mm -hmm. in addition to contributing to Social Security, will again be penalized. The system already skews yeah. well, we, we already supplementing. We already means, mean test Medicare. And, and right. for those in the upper income, it, there's you know some pretty tough skewing there. So that's yeah. for Medicare. Yeah. The average couple today um, for Social Security... They would have made a lot more money if they their money had gone in the market or they, you know, um, sure. President Bush's, yeah. you know, sidecar concept. But you get all your money back plus about a $70,000 spiff. Horrible rate of return, but you get all your money back. Right. The, the driver of the shortfall really is Medicare. You put in that average couple in America will put in about $164,000. And with the medical inflation, our new calculations are getting it close to 600,000 back out. So yeah. you, it's those four plus hundred thousand dollar separation. Per couple. Per couple. Per couple. Per couple. Yeah. So now you multiply that there's 76, or excuse me, 67 million baby boomers, um, you know, divided by two, those, but the, you start to understand why just Medicare has 80, 90 trillion dollar shortfall over the next 30 years when you add in its interest costs. Incidentally, I want to remind our, our viewers, our listeners, as the case may be, um, and if you happen to be listening to this on uh, one of the dozens of different podcast outlets, I'll remind you to go to degreen.com. You can watch the video of this so you can see David's handsome face and um, uh, see me when I raise my eyebrows and so on. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's degreen.com. And I'll also remind you that our plan was, David and I had discussed in advance, that as after we define the problem and it's significant, then I want to yield the floor as David uh, addresses uh, in what will probably be part two of this discussion, um, a pathway to hope. Um, and you can decide there, there for are, yourselves there are whether it's solutions. illusory. Yeah, yeah. But, but we'll we'll get we'll get there. Um, but it's but Keith. One of the reasons I'm doing this rambling, and a lot of this you already know, is I'm still stunned. Um, look, I'm blessed. I represent one of the best educated districts in America, one of the most successful districts in America. Right. Um, and still, I will get up in front of audiences where the entire room has you know you know, postgraduate degrees and you're walking through, you're showing your, showing your slides and they, they never processed what had happened where beginning in the early nineties, when fertility rates began to fall. So the number of replacement workers. So at the end of this decade, you're down to two to 2.3 workers for every one person on retirement. And we weren't supposed to hit numbers like that for another 18 years. Yeah. Um, and, and so now with longevity, 
um, for seniors. Remember, U.S. Um, lifespans have been falling, but it's more because our young, substantially young male workers have been dying of obesity, dying of drugs, dying of suicide. It's it's actually just devastating, uncomfortable when you look at the math. Yeah. But this separation here and every day, forgive me, I'm about to sneeze. That's all right. Go ahead and sneeze. Sorry. Every day we don't do something, it gets worse. And then we had President Biden do the State of the Union. And during his State of the Union, basically said, okay, we're not allowed to talk about Social Security and Medicare. So you're saying, look, um, as a, we're, we're looking at numbers that are so large that they really are hard uh, to grasp. Uh, the dollar would have to um, inflate enormously for uh, the government to be able to, you know, inflation is the debtor's best friend. Yes. If I can pay you with an de- inflated dollar a year from now, uh, I'm going to be better off. If the dollar inflates by 3% and I owe you 4%, it only costs me 1% to borrow the money. So, Keith, if I came to you right now and said, what's actually the largest tax hike functioning in U.S. history? I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. I would say inflation from the last two years. Oh, and, oh sure. And sure, most people don't sure, think absolutely, that Absolutely, yeah. 24% inflation since Biden took office. So, so if you take that and say, you, it's for everyone that's listening, um, just in your head, think about this. Um, there's $30 trillion, Now, today, it's actually $32 trillion of total debt. Right. Um, $26 trillion of publicly held. But, but you still have Two, to pay back the debt to the trust funds also. $250,000 per taxpayer. So if I, I have two ways, government has two ways to pay that back. You know, we can tax you for the interest and then eventually the principal. Or I can inflate reducing the value of your savings and your income and then pay it back with cheaper dollars. Right. So functionally, we have swept everyone who's saving and everyone that's working, a a stunning amount of your income, and we will now pay back that debt with those inflated dollars. You know, I I hearken back to the Weimar Republic in Germany after World War I. Uh, The Treaty of Versailles uh, Versailles had imposed upon Germany after World War I these enormous uh, penalties and costs that they were to repay. The uh, industrialists in Germany and the government got together and they said, fine, fortunately for us, they uh, articulated this in German marks. Therefore, let's inflate the hell out of German marks. And that's and, and that's exactly what they did. But, but to the point where their debt became meaningless. But people starved in there, Germany. And that actually is a brilliant history lesson. So when I'm doing some of these presentations on with my slides and the debt, you get yeah. people who will say, it's gonna blow up. There'll be, you know, a Black Tuesday or Black Monday type. And no. So you don't wake up, at least our economist vision is you don't wake up one day and things go kaboom. In some ways, it's actually worse. It's a rot. The math, according to this um, Congressional Budget Office, in 23 years, the United States would have to double 
every tax, imports, income, corporate, just to maintain baseline services. Now, is this what what at what projected rate of economic growth uh, would that be based upon? Uh, I think the one eight. Um, Because that's our long-term run rate now. And actually, in about a decade, it actually steps down a little bit from that um, because a lot of our most productive workers have actually moved into retirement years. The um, Okay, fair enough. What what, what I was thinking of is that you have these uh, workers that are moving into retirement years, but you also have, I think it surprises some people that the generation right behind the boomers is actually slightly larger than the boomer generation because we had kids at a slightly higher rate than ourselves. Yeah. Um, but, so, but it's still, it's still, you know, pretty dicey. It's still pretty dicey. It's okay. Do what you got to do. No, dude. no, no. We're just, she, she, my Joyce is here helping us plug in. We were getting low on power. So. Oh, there thank we you, go. Joyce. Thank you, Joyce. You're welcome. <laughs> Uh, so look, um, you walk through. All those right, so numbers. we can't, we can't, we can't. Look, we can't just, we cannot just inflate our way out. Obviously, well, we could, and, and, and but right, it just, well, it we, will just create stunning amounts of misery. And poverty, particularly for seniors, would be devastating. And you get the barbell effect. You also wipe out my kids. Right. I mean, and this is just what we're looking at. So right. You, you have a situation here where, so what's the solution? We have all these promises we've made as a society, whether it be Social Security or Medicare, that are the primary driver of borrowing. Um, almost every cut we make um, uh, helps, but it also will slow down some GDP growth. Go ahead. So... Um, Sorry, we, I was doing something backwards on the power cord. Um, so if I came to you right now, and this we probably should use as part of our second half of the discussion, yeah. of, okay, if healthcare is our primary driver of debt, productivity is one of our primary drivers of the failure of growth, what could you and I come up with that says, I need population stability because my fertility rates have collapsed. I need adoption of technology because we don't have the cash flow to maintain the size of the bureaucracy we have. Over here, we know that um, obesity, diabetes are the primary most expensive things in our society. Um, And you start to walk through even down to the tax code that would encourage investment. Um, in capital items that if we're really on that edge of a technological revolution where we could be much more productive. And when I say that, I'm talking things from biology, you know, the stem cell therapies that look like they're going to cure all the way down to what AI could do in the manufacturing process. We're we're bumping up now against solutions. Yeah, but but I'm going to tie this back into how do you culturally, though, if if debt is exploding around you and almost no one's willing to actually talk about it and you still have the economic folklore, for the left, it's raised taxes. For the right, well, we can just trim a few things and we'll be fine. Right. And so that's why it's so important to lay the scale out 
of the scale of the problem and the fact that some of the solutions that we'll talk about in more depth in the second half of this um, are going to create real disruptions. And when I say disruptions in work life, um, disruptions in how some people make money, what you choose to invest in, but there is a path. And I'm and I'm we're going to bump uh, we're going to get into that just in a, a minute or two. I want to hit you with a sidebar issue um, as, as we're talking about how uh, challenging things are right now. The Reins Amendment, mm-hmm. Reins Act, uh, the Reins Act, the uh, budget deal that was recently concluded. Initially, it does include a provision that. Uh, regulations, federal regulations impacting the public have to be approved now by Congress. But that was Section 236 of the Act. To Section 239 takes it away. Well, and gives, the, the, the other section is if there's a declared emergency. So it's still... Oh, didn't, so did, didn't the lady already, or one of the bureaucrats, unelected bureaucrats, oh, yeah. say she's going to declare the emergency right away? Well, um, so you, it takes you out of the game again. But, but here's part of where there's sort of intellectually the fraud. Um, two years later, or, or a year and a half later, a new Congress changes the rules. The real right. battle is actually these appropriations documents. Because whether you like it or not, I get people who say, well, you didn't cut enough. Well, they cut to the author, authorized spending. So it's one thing to create a cap. And you remember, David's on the Ways and Means Committee yeah. and occupies a position and I'm of number four on Ways and Means now. Um, so you, you have your spending cap, and then you get this thing called the budget. The budget isn't like your home budget. The budget is a box saying, okay, here's what the spending will be, except an appropriations deal um, can bust the budget. So we get these budgets all the time. Well, thank you, little girl. Um, and... Yet the appropriations bills, the 12 of them, there's a reason they almost have never been completely completed, all 12 of them completed in decades. Because in some ways it's easier hiding behind, well, we'll, on that portion of the government, we'll just use a continuing resolution and spend what we did spend last year, but we'll plus up parts of it. So there's a battle that has begun as of last week on those appropriations bills where Congress, if you actually visit the Capitol, the hallways are full of people who will walk in your door, tell you how conservative they are, how much they care, but their program and how much needs they want. more money. And how much they want. Right. Yeah. Oh, and it's, and you just, they're wonderful people. You still want to strangle them, but they're, I mean, they mean well, but, <laughs> but they see the whole world through the way their charity are yeah. their business, are their government, or this and makes money. And so in the thought process where, and there's a reason I'm going through this, if you're the town council, if you're the county government, if you're the state government, if you're the university, all these, think of the, the hundreds of levels of government that partially live off of federal largesse. Right. They need to rethink their cash flow. You think? They need oh, you to think? really rethink that they have hidden behind, well, we're not going to raise local taxes because the feds are going to borrow money and right. ship it to them. This is one right. of the great scams in society. 
is that road, that freeway, that building, that university project, this and that, if they're getting grants. It didn't or, cost us a thing. Didn't yeah. cost us a thing. Yeah. And yet the truth yeah. is those dollars um, lived on borrowed money that we're paying interest on that ultimately your kids and grandkids pay for or your retirement will ultimately end well, up paying for. Yeah, it's the phenomenon of uh, diffusion of responsibility. Diffusion of responsibility, yeah, which well, is why local so government easy. needs to be as local as possible because then you have to look people in the eye and explain where the money's coming from. Very much so. But because yeah. the federal government ha had the authority to borrow, where most state governments um, actually have to have a balanced budget, right? Um, you start to see um, the layer. So where, how does that affect someone who both invests, you know, um, you, if you're going to buy muni bonds, I, I love muni bonds. Uh, when I was county treasurer, I issued how many of them? <laughs> yeah. But now you want to look at those reps and warrants on how much of that is coming from local taxpayers, local real estate taxes, other things, or how much is it tied to, you know, grant programs or other types of federal right. dollars? So you could start right. to understand it's not only just the debt and the fact it's consuming much of the um, capital stock in the United States and the world, it's even down to, as you start to live in the new caps, what's going to be the effect down to even local governments? So I think, I think to summarize what you're saying at that level is there is a hidden uh, or overlooked, I should say, flow of income that's being financed through the debt that's filtering down through the states and local governments, and they love it Very because much. then they don't have to account for that money they don't have to go back to their people and say, we're going to raise your taxes. No, we're just going to increase your debt. But that's someone else doing that. You don't have to worry about, you know, don't look over there. Look over here. Yes. It's yeah. one of the, the great <laughs> scams in America yeah. is yeah. most folks don't have any concept, particularly over the last couple of years, the COVID times, how much of your state budget was actually federal money. Right. Right. David, let's do this. Um, this has been a good discussion and a depressing discussion, I think for a lot of folks who may not have been as familiar with some of these overwhelming numbers as they would like to be. Um, what I'd like to do, folks, is launch what we'll call part two of this interview. Um, I will probably reintroduce David, uh, for those of you who only catch part two, uh, as part of the process. But we have been discussing the monumental budgetary challenges with the fourth ranking member of the Ways and Means, the fourth, you're not, you don't call it ranking. Ranking is no, when no, you're in the no, minority. I, I, we're in the majority now, so we're no longer ranking. Yeah, right. <laughs> but you're the fourth That's guy. That's why I get on a chairmanship. Ways and Means. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. And they put you in charge of solving Social Security, which, again, either says they respect you or they just don't like you. And um, uh, they actually, want you to get no. <laughs> it, it's more than that. Um, you know, I'm pursuing the chairmanship of the Debt Commission. Um, we had a solution for Social Security. It was bipartisan. And the president blew us up during the State of the Union address because the politics were more powerful, at least to the left, than the actual solution. And I know really? that's mean and vicious, but I can prove it. I can, I can show you the facts that happened back last January. So, and, and we're having this discussion, I might add, um, what is it, the 17th of June in 2023. Um, the things we are discussing, unfortunately, are not entirely time sensitive because the problem is just going to get worse. 
um, until uh, we get some real solutions um, in in place or until um, technology and some of the uh, free market innovation starts start catching up and accelerating our rate of growth. Because um, we can either inflate our way out of this debt problem or we can grow our way out of this debt problem. You cannot tax your way out of the debt problem. You can't tax your way out of it. And the other punchline it needs to be understood. Um, so the, we're in the 2023 budget cycle. Right. Our borrowing, we were only supposed to, if you and I went back a year and a half ago, projected borrowing for this year was about $900 billion. Still a stunning amount of money. Right. Looks like we will be double that. Say that again for me. We are heading towards about a 1.8, 1.9. I have one of my economists that thinks we could get up to $2 trillion of borrow in this budget year. You oh must understand gosh. why that's so devastating. We're no longer in COVID. Right. Much of this is spending from when the Democrats were in charge, whether it be from the CHIPS Act or their Inflation Reduction Act, you know, handing out money and those things. So the spending side of the ledger just grew right. immensely. Um, but with that, you, we're also running into some fascinating tax receipts. When you've had a time of inflation, how many people want to sell something where the capital gains tax they're going to pay is mostly inflation? And the asset you would move your your receipts to right. is another inflated asset because of inflation. So we've actually seen capital ta- capital gains tax collections crash over the last couple of months, which actually because starts, people are not people are not selling. Correct, because right. I'm going to pay this much capital gains on something that truly isn't an actual gain. It's just everything got so I'm going to be taxed on inflation. Now, on passive investments, uh, you can also understand in, uh, people that have their money in the market. Now, I'm not talking about someone who's trying to sell a business mm-hmm. or uh, a, a building or something. But people have their money in the market. They see the market increasing right now, accelerating, um, which historically, incidentally, is very interesting. Uh, every uh, After every midterm election for the past 40 years, the S&P has risen by an average of 15%. Go figure. Go figure. Who the heck knows why? Yeah. But it's happening. It's happening yet again. Of course, we're coming off of a horrible uh, 2022. So I can understand why market participants are not necessarily selling out right now. It's perhaps the most unloved rally I've seen in the last couple of decades. But people still acknowledge, yeah, stock prices are going up. I'm not going to get out right now. You know, life, life's good. But the person that owns the business who was thinking about selling, the person that owns a building that was thinking about selling, they know that a big, big chunk of their gain is attributable to nothing more than inflation. And so, so it's not a real gain. So when you balance all the, the suddenly you know, health care costs, Medicare costs in the first seven months of this budget year, we're up 16 percent. In the first really? seven months. Um, uh, delayed of the, medical of this procedures year. and of this fiscal year since October. Yeah. So, uh, so in the first seven yeah. months of this fiscal year, um, yeah. where my receipts, tax receipts, we, they're not revenues. Governments don't have revenues. We have tax receipts, uh, have fallen about 10%. So that's, you see that, but the reason I'm making this point in the current budget year, yeah. let's say we get up near that 1.9, 1.8 trillion borrowing in this year, 
that functionally equals the entire defense budget and the rest of the government's budget. What we call what all do you mean discretionary. Defense? You mean all the it, it all equals the entire amount of discretionary plus plus uh, military. Yep. Or plus so defense. non-defense discretionary defense. So, as people say, well, just cut something. I can wop. Sorry, we can wipe out all government and all military right now, and we functionally a year from now have to still be borrowing money. Yeah, I hope that actually creates a, a mental visual of how bad the problem is. The clown show out there goes, just cut foreign aid or just do this or do that, and that yeah. balances it. You know, and and you should see the look of faces. When I'm doing, you know, I'm at the Kiwanis Club or the the Economics Club, and I'm showing the slides. And these are really well-educated people saying, look here, where we're at today, I can get rid of all of government, and I still have to borrow money. And they just stare at you like, that can't be. I was told waste and fraud would take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've got – go ahead. No. so, So this is sort of laying the chess pieces of problem, stunningly uncomfortable. Yes. Really, really huge and difficult, but there still is hope. And, and that's what we want to do in the second part. Well, as David explained, America's healthcare system is in crisis, but there are solutions. In part two of our discussion, available to our premium members, Congressman Schweiker and I discuss very specific proposals to effectively address this challenge. Now, as you may know, Premium membership is really inexpensive and offers many additional benefits. So I hope you choose to join us. See you there.